0: Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from BearMarriage.com, and I am so glad that you have joined me, that you are part of this big movement to help the evangelical church move towards healthy evidence-based biblical advice for your sex life and your marriage. And we are changing the conversation and that is having ripple effects even beyond the evangelical church into our culture at large. Together we can do this. And I'm so encouraged that you've joined us on this journey. Um, We have some exciting things on this podcast. I have an amazing interview with a wonderful author, but before we get started, I just want to give a special shout out to our patrons, a very special group of people who help fund some of the dreams that we have of moving beyond just baremarriage.com into an online community where we can have an even bigger impact where it's not just about Sheila, but it's about everybody who's speaking into this space and calling for healthy evidence-based biblical. Um, so do check us out at patreon.com slash baremarriage. You'll get access to unfiltered podcasts, um, to our Facebook group. Honestly, I love our group. It's like my safe space online, um, and so much more. On the blog this month, we are talking about how to dig out of the pit that sometimes we dig for ourselves when our sexual lives get so complicated. And I have a special guest who has a really important message in his book, Unwanted, that can help us with that. So here is Jay Stringer. Well, this is an interview I have been so excited about and so looking forward to. I have Jay Stringer. On with me. He is a licensed psychotherapist trained in Seattle. Was there at the founding of the Dan Allender Center, and now is the author of an incredible book, um, "Unwanted." And Jay, thank you so much for being here.
1: Sheila, I am so grateful to be on your show. Uh, this is such an honor for me as well. So thank you for just the privilege of this invitation.
0: Yeah, I, I Jay and I um, connected about a month ago. We had a great um, long conversation about how our, our work intertwines and overlaps and uh, just, we, we have such similar hearts in that, like, let's do the research. Let's figure out what's really going on and let's get to the bottom of it as opposed to just throwing theology at everything.
1: Yes. Yeah. We need to change this conversation yeah, dramatically. So, so yeah, I'm so grateful to be kind of a co-laborer with you and having a much different conversation than any of us grew up with or inherited.
0: Mhm mhm. So tell us the premise of unwanted if you could yeah. put it in an elevator pitch.
1: <laughs> okay. So the premise of unwanted is that sexual problems are a roadmap to healing. They are not a life sentence to sexual shame or sexual addiction. So uh, a, a lot of this, I mean, very similar to you, Sheila. Uh, I was a licensed therapist, started seeing uh, a lot of my early work was with uh, sex buyers in the city of Seattle. And so started just kind of seeing a lot of these patterns emerge with men. And then I kind of got known for working with sexual problems in the city. And so after that just became like a lot of, you know, infidelity, porn struggles, you uh, lack of desire within a marriage and so that was kind of my early work is just kind of recognizing like there's a lot of patterns there was a lot of family of origin stuff that was just never addressed there was a lot of, around adverse childhood experiences like sexual abuse or bullying and yet you know as you read most of the Christian literature in there it is uh just it, you know I would put it in the category of lust management and so it's uh you know bounce. Bounce your eyes, uh, slap a rubber band around your wrist when you're having a sexual thought. And it's this sense of like, I just need to manage this entire thing. So when I started writing my book, I had a friend of mine say, Jay, when I have been having the same conversation with my accountability partner for 15 years, like, <laughs> you know that something is not working. And so Uh, Just started seeing a lot of patterns and was really intrigued by, you know, a lot of the major porn companies keep track of their data. And so, you know, they would always publish what are the top 10 search for terms on the internet. And so I was really intrigued if we could begin to predict people's sexual fantasies and people's unwanted sexual behaviors based in the unresolved parts of people's lives. So we created a research instrument, looked at your relationship with your parents, adverse childhood experiences, difficulties that you were experiencing in the present, like a lack of purpose or depression. And then we wanted to get a sense of how did that person's story go on to shape uh, the sexual problems that that they would end up encountering throughout their life. And so that's what the research kind of came back is that we could not, we could basically get a sense of the key drivers that would influence people's sexual behaviors and some of just the unwanted sexual fantasies that they were facing. So um, the other kind of thing I would say is I use the phrase unwanted sexual behavior for a lot of my work. And the reason why I do that is, you know, a lot of the conservative circles Uh, if you struggle with anything sexually, you're kind of just named as an addict, right? And so it becomes this very like pathological approach of you know any struggle needs to be pathologized, needs to be condemned. Uh, Or you look at more progressive circles and there's a sense of like, it's not necessarily lust management, but it's shame management. And so the thinking is like, if we can just kind of reduce the shame of people's lives, then they're gonna make healthier sexual choices. In a lot of ways that's true, but in a lot of ways it is not true. And so unwanted was just a unwanted sexual behavior was a phrase that I started using to say all of us have some dimension of our sexual thought life or imagination or behavior that maybe if we were honest at the end of the day we wish was not true. And so not to say that people don't have wanted (laughs) sexual behavior that causes problems, but I think once the debris of your sexual life begins to add up around you, I think there is that existential cry of the soul that says like, I need to outgrow this, I need to change this, I need to understand what's all driving this. So. Yeah.
0: I love that. And that key, understand what's all driving this, that's really what your book is for And I just, I had such a good time reading it. You know, you talked about so many people who they just hit this crisis wall, where their relationships are falling apart, maybe they're so deep in debt from participating in sex trafficking, buying sex from people, um, whatever it might be, and they, they've tried everything, they've done the mm-hmm. accountability, it's not working, but they don't want to stay stuck and they, yes. they know this is wrong. And so, you know, what you've done is show how we can get to the heart of it. And I, there's one phrase that you used, which I thought was so brilliant. We never stop to listen to our lust.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I don't think people yeah, have a clue very. what that means, but <laughs> but when I figured out what it meant, it's like, Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. So can you explain that
1: for sure. Uh, so I, I mean, one of the you know, metaphors, similes that I work with, is just that sense of like, imagine that your life is a is a sexual house. And so kind of, especially for men, there's that sense of, you know, it's late in the evening and you feel that familiar knock of lust or sexual desire come to your door. And just that question of like, what are you gonna do with it? And so a lot of times the evangelical approach is like lust management. And that's the force field around your house. You call a friend for backup, you get your internet monitoring. Uh, So it's a very like stiff arm approach. Uh, And and yet the problem with that is that a lot of times, a lot of my clients would begin to use these filters as almost like fences that they were trying to get under or over in order to access porn, which then kind of harken back to maybe something of their childhood where there were very rigid demands around everything. And so they just began to use filters in a very similar way to which they would hide from their parents. Uh, so all of that aside, most of the you know Christian approach is stiff arm it. Uh, or the other approach would just be to let something of that intruder come in, ransack various rooms of your life, your marriage. And so the premise that I work with is like, what if you went out onto the front porch of your sexual life and you just began to ask yourself questions? Like, why is it that I have been drawn to that type of pornography since the time I was 15? Or why is it that once I got married, something in me became very entitled? And what was all that about? Or, uh, you know, maybe if you, are in a marriage where your partner has a much more higher desire for sex, you might feel this sense of, I just don't, I don't know how to say no. Or, you know, I, I might say yes, but my heart, my soul is not really in it. And so really just trying to invite people to say like, what if your low desire or what if that sense of like excessive desire are actually trying to tell you something about where you come from or what you're facing right now. And so a lot of the research that we looked at was, uh, one example would be, you know, let's say that you were a, a man that wanted to see porn that had to do with like uh, college age students, a race that suggested to you some level of subservience. Uh, what we found was that if that was your porn search, uh, you tended to have a history of a very strict parent. You were dealing with a a lack of purpose in your life and you had high levels of shame. And so part of what I want to point out there is not just saying like using porn uh, is not wrong. I'm just trying to say that approach of saying no is not an adequate vision for recovery. And so part of what we can begin to learn from our fantasies is that You know, in that specific one, let's say you come from a family that tends to be, you know, very rigid, a lot of rulemaking. Well, rigid parents often create a sense of powerlessness for their children. So that sense of like, I, I don't know how to desire or anything I desire throughout childhood is always squashed or it's just kind of met with a level of resistance or shame well, porn can become appealing to people, not just because of lust, but far more, it's that issue of power. And so if you come from a place of powerlessness, one of the strategies that you will deploy with porn is to be able to develop a place where you can find power. Or, you know, let's say you have a, a profound lack of purpose in your life. And I kind of just liken it to, you know, you try and pull a lawnmower if you are in a urban, <laughs> whenever I use that. Example, in the New York City, it doesn't work because no one has lawnmowers. But uh, (laughs) if you try and pull that lawnmower and it just doesn't start, and that's kind of how you just understand your life. Like, I don't like my job. I look back at my life and I just see a lot of failures and a lot of debris. Again, one of the reasons why porn or uh, other unwanted sexual behaviors can be appealing is because you can get exactly what you want when you want it. And nothing else in the entire world kind of offers you that level of certainty. And so part of what I'm trying to invite people into is how do we understand the strategies of why we are going to a particular behavior or a particular fantasy? And I think especially as Christians, I think of, you know, Romans 12, 2, which says, you know, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, most of us have, as Christians have never been invited to understand our sexual minds at all. It's just kind of like it's bad before marriage and then it's supposed to get great. And Mm -hmm. once we find out that, you know, that was an illusion, (laughs) uh, we don't know where else to turn except back to that sense of let me try and manage this thing. Let me try and suppress this. And I think we have to be honest to say it has not worked. And so... That's the listen to your lust is we have so much to learn from some of the difficult sexual experiences that we have. If we could just find a way to be curious about what they're trying to reveal.
0: Yeah, that, I think that's that's so interesting. And um, that one phrase in Romans, you know, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. If you think about it, when we search for that fulfillment, for that healing of whatever wounds we're carrying outside of Christ. Yep. And we we turn to it in porn or, or in fantasy or whatever it might be, then the pattern of this world often warps it even further. So you'll see you'll, you'll see like the racism that's that's so inherent in our culture rampant gets yep. you know gets filtered in and warped because we've taken something. And instead of putting it with Jesus, we put it in this darker place and then it gets even more twisted. Um, and I really appreciate in your book too, how you talk so much about, you know, sex trafficking and violence against women and how, you know, so much porn is about degradation and humiliation and, and why it is that we are attracted to that, even when we don't want to be, I find, I found, I found really interesting. Um, I want to read, I I want to read this one quote from the book, just talking about listening to your list. I am asking you to consider the possibility that your sexual problem is not random. We are often more comfortable talking about how screwed up we are now than asking the why questions, you know, about how we got there in the first place. And I, I, yeah, that that's really what this book is. And so I encourage people you really mm-hmm. do need to read it. it. It it's really wonderful. Um and then a, another quote that goes along. With, I'm just going to keep quoting, you okay? Yeah. But, <laughs> like this. Bit. Um you said Madison was not a worthless woman because she viewed pornography or used hookup apps. Rather, she felt worthless and therefore was drawn to pornography, a behavior that for her would then confirm this belief.
1: Yes because so another, cycle. Yeah, another counterintuitive kind of premise of my book is that a lot of times when you hear people talk about unwanted sexual behavior, uh, they use the term kind of self-medicating. Uh, and so there's a sense of like, I'm just going to this thing to find a level of release. And you will never hear me say that that is not true, but I think it's a partial truth. And so the danger of all partial truths is that you begin to elevate it with much more importance uh, than it deserves. And so I think the other side to it is I think that unwanted sexual behavior and people's pursuit of it is far more for the purpose of judgment than for the purpose of self-medicating. And so if I have a negative core belief in me that was shaped maybe by my family of origin, maybe by the church that I grew up in, and I kind of tend to see myself as worthless or perverse, well, we will go and seek out behaviors that confirm that core belief. It's kind Mm -hmm. of like exhibit A in the courtroom uh, with regard to evidence against us. And so that's where I'm really inviting people to understand, like, when you think about your inner voice, uh, are you kind to yourself? Or is there a level of harshness of like, I'm always going to struggle with this thing. This is always going to be my battle. Um, I don't know what's wrong with me. There's something about me that is always going to be broken. And so lo and behold, you begin to pursue maybe an unwanted sexual behavior or a career struggle. And it just becomes this endless, uh, reinforcement of those beliefs. So in psychology, there's this phrase that says that the way that our parents talk to us becomes our inner voice. And I think that that's really true of parenting. I think that's really true of theology. So when you begin to think about God, uh, it's very important to think about what are God's thoughts about us. And, you know, in the Psalm 139, it ends with a sense of, you know, everything about me. And yet, how rare, how precious are your thoughts about you? Mm-hmm. And so, I think that, you know, it, most of us don't have that experience with a mother, a father or uh, just our understanding of God, that those thoughts about us are precious. And and so I think the more kind our inner voices, the more kind a lot of the behaviors that we will pursue are. And so that's, you know, just a lot of this invitation is instead of just trying to manage your lust or your behavior, you've got to go back to some of those early childhood relationships and trauma that began to shape Uh, a very negative core belief about you.
0: Yeah. And a lot of people don't like that. Oh yeah, we're going to blame it on the mom or, oh yeah, I'm going to sit on the couch, talk about my mom, but (laughs) (laughs) we get this really negative picture of this. And and no one's trying to say that you don't take responsibility for it, but it's just, if we're going to recover, we need to understand the why.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Because not yeah, all of I'm us gonna, have the same fantasies. Not all of us act out in the same way. Not all, And that's because things are different for each person. Yes. And so we have to understand the why.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, one of the examples that I think about in this realm is, uh, you know, in Harry Potter, my kids have been watching it uh, pretty consistently. And they, they keep watching, I don't, maybe it's the first movie, second movie. Uh, but Harry Potter looks into the mirror of Irased. And so Irased is desire spelled backwards. Mm-hmm. And so when Harry looks into the mirror, what he sees is an image of his parents, right? And so he's an orphan. And so that begins to make sense that this mirror of Irased is reflecting back to Harry Some of his most ardent longings, his wishes, uh, it reveals a lot of the wounds where he comes from. And I think arousal is very similar. Uh, We don't always understand kind of what all is going on inside there. But if we can begin to understand that some of the strategy might be to highlight an area of wounding or maybe an area of like we don't feel comfortable for asking the things that we have that we desire sexually. And so the only way that we know how to be sexually honest is with our sexual fantasy life in a way that we don't feel comfortable disclosing that to anyone. So I think Mm -hmm. just that sense of curiosity is so helpful to be able to say, maybe there's a wound, maybe, you know, I come from a background where I was never invited uh, to understand sexual fantasy from from a non-pathological approach and so, I think we just need to be deeply, deeply curious uh, about what all is happening inside of us.
0: Well, Halloween is over and you know what that means, right? Christmas is just around the corner. And so as you are getting started thinking about Christmas shopping, can I put a little plug in for some of our biblical womanhood merch? We have some awesome two different designs on what it means to be a biblical woman. And it's not sugar and spice and everything nice. It's like winning battles. It's like speaking up. It's prophesying. It's leading. It's all of these fun things. So do check out our merch. We've got mugs. We've got bags. We've got things for your wall. Um, we've got inexpensive gifts that you can give um, or just conversation starters, like even our love and respect merch. So check out the link to our merch. Just go to baremarriage.com, hit store, and you will find it. When you buy our merch, it supports this blog and this podcast, but it also helps spread a really important message. You know, that's one area where I had a major aha moment reading your book. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is the answer I've been looking for because I get inundated um, with emails by women reaching out and saying, I've never told anyone this. I don't know what to do with this, but I have these fantasies that I hate and I would never want to do any of them in real life you know, a lot of these women are saying, but a lot of it relates to, you know, bondage or um, rape fantasies. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so many women got caught up in 50 shades of gray. And they're like, I don't I wouldn't even want it. But I find this really erotic. And I don't know yes. why. And, and they want to get rid of it. And they feel so guilty. And they feel so much mm-hmm. shame. And um, you were explaining in the book how often it's women who actually gravitate to, uh violent porn even more than than men proportionally
1: proportionally yeah
0: and um which doesn't mean which doesn't mean that more women are looking at violent porn than men it's just if you look at porn users just so stats so so people understand this
1: well said yeah
0: (laughs) if you look at if you look at the proportion if you look at women who are using porn they are more likely to look at violent porn than men are of men who are using porn yes yeah so like and and why would that be and you explained that for a lot of women um there's numerous answers but one could be that they're repeating behaviors that have happened so especially if you've been abused in the past and another yeah. could be that we're so tired of trying to stay in control and fight against the negative things that happen to women in society that it's yeah. just that you just give up fighting and you give into it
1: Yes. Yep. Yeah. We could do a whole episode yes. on that. And I'm, after I share, would love to hear your thoughts as well. But I've, I think two categories, again, uh, I always think about like sexual desire and arousal as like a river, no different than the Mississippi. And so part of what makes the Mississippi river so powerful is that there are many tributaries that flow into it, like the Missouri, the Ohio, Arkansas, Tennessee. And so it, again, just that danger of the partial truce, right? So if we think about sexual desire as a river, we have to be able to say there's there's a lot of tributaries to it. it could be family of origin, could be childhood trauma, could be uh, social conditioning, could be uh, any number of things. So what I'm gonna kind of talk about are just two possible tributaries. This isn't exhaustive by any stretch, but. Uh, I'll never forget working with one of my first uh, clients who she had a past history of sexual abuse. And uh, part of what she was coming in to see me for was uh, she would end up in a lot of sexual situations uh, that she would. I think she used the term like they were always kind of gray, like I didn't necessarily give my consent, but I was also. You know, willingly participating in this thing. And so she was trying to understand both her allure towards more violent porn, but then also putting herself in positions where uh, there would be a level of violence done to her. And so as we began to go back into her story, uh, she began to talk about uh, this experience that she had with her abuser and, you know, a, a bit of a trigger warning in terms of what I'm about to say, but One of the things that I don't think many of us understand about abuse is that when we first hear that term, uh, our hearts break. We think about uh, just something deep within us being violated, our humanity taken away. But the other side to that equation is that most abusers are very masterful in the grooming process and so they want to give us as many experiences of yes and delight and joy and and just that sense of attunement and so a lot of times you know god has wired our bodies to respond to connection uh to sexual touch to sexual experiences that we've never seen or experienced before. And so during the course of her abuse, one of the things that she remembered doing was kind of opening up her legs uh, because she felt a level of longing for his touch. And it was that moment that kind of, set the trajectory of just a lot of shame and heartache for her because she hated that she as a girl uh, wanted something of that pleasure and touch. And so part of, as we began to do work together, what she described to me is, I think one of the reasons why I go to this level of porn or to these sexual experiences is because I don't have to choose it. And so for her, choice was one of the places that uh, she had a lot of shame for. And so the razor's edge that I had to walk with her as a clinician was how do we condemn uh, the criminal act of sexual abuse and be able to say this is egregious. Uh, It it set up a trajectory of a lot of sexual shame and uh, heartache and we need to condemn it. But at the same time, there was this 13 year old girl who, you know, her sexual arousal desire was beginning to open up for the first time and she felt a level of pleasure there. And so that sense of how do we not condemn her for feeling a level of desire, but then mature it to be able to say, what are the conditions? What are the relationships where uh, your pleasure is going to be prioritized in a way that is safe, that is a way that is enjoyable. And so that was a lot of our work was uh, for her to begin to bless arousal and pleasure for the first time in her life. And, it's not, and a lot of that you know, sexual fantasy of something darker Uh, began to lessen just through that work. So that would be an example of, you know, childhood sexual abuse reenactment uh, that led into that. The other category would be, you know, a lot of people that grow up in purity culture, uh, there's that sense of I'm not supposed to be sexual and it's more, you know, men are the very sexual ones. Men are the ones that have high sex drives. And so for a lot of women, that that just does not apply to at all, that they feel a lot of sexual desire. Uh, There's some language that uh, Emily Nagowski uses with regard to, you know, we all need to understand what our sexual accelerators are and our sexual breaks are. And some women might have more sexual breaks than accelerators. And it's knowing how to work with those. But some women that just have, you know, a, a lot of sexual accelerators and they feel a lot of sexual desire. If they don't feel like they are being invited or comfortable talking about this desire that they have for sex, sometimes a more kind of violent fantasy of just like wanting to be taken Uh, begins to develop within them. And so it's that sense of how do you understand that maybe some of the sexual fantasy life that you only feel comfortable doing in fantasy might be something of a clarion call for you to speak to more sexual desire or behaviors that you would love and enjoy to participate in. And so I think that we just have to look at it from multiple perspectives to Mm -hmm. say, yeah, there could be a lot of past trauma Uh, You know, maybe someone has a past history of seeing pornography, more violent images. And so that set a particular sexual template for them that they don't feel normal unless they're seeing those things or that other end of, you know, this is maybe the first time in their life that they feel comfortable expressing a sexual desire, but it's always in the realm of fantasy, not in the relationship.
0: Right. Does that make sense? Those two categories? I think a lot of it, yeah, is, is I I see a lot of the second category of women who um, they just feel so guilty about having any kind of desire, or they don't have a way to talk about what they want, that the idea that they don't have to do any work, Mm -hmm. you know, that sex is something that is done to them where they don't have to do any work. I think that that, yes that can be a root in. I I think, and I think you mentioned it too, is like, if you spend your life fighting for your own safety, like you don't Mm -hmm. feel safe, maybe in your relationships, or just uh, you feel constantly objectified, or whatever it might be in our society, if you don't feel safe, and you feel like you're always on your guard, then just being able to give into it, (laughs) I think can be another.
1: Yes. Another thing. Yeah. I think that category of guilt feels very true. Yeah. Good language for it.
0: It very, I, I just find this interesting because so we, we often see our fantasies as something that is like external to us in the sense of like, I don't know why I'm turned on by this when I don't, yeah. I, I wouldn't even want it. And so it seems like it has just crept in there for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you can yeah. listen to it, then the yes. you get rid of a lot of shame, but also understand so much more about you. And if you can have those conversations with your spouse, I, I think there's a level of, of intimacy there um, that can be so freeing. You know, when mm-hmm. you say this is the actual underlying need that I figured out, you know, it's not that I want to act out this this totally violent, dehumanizing thing. Mm -hmm. It's that I want to free myself to be able to feel desire or it's that I just want to feel safe. I just don't feel safe. I'm always on my guard or whatever it might be.
1: Yes. Yeah. 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 It could be safety. It could be like a level of, I just need some passion and Mm -hmm. this marriage and this relationship and yeah. So,
0: so many things. Yeah. Yeah. And again, some people's fantasies are totally different. Like you talked about people who have fantasies, you know, is there, if, Children or some ancestral fantasies like there's there's all kinds of stuff that we have that we hate,
1: and we just don't have many places in our world today to be to understand those um to be curious to like when we get coffee or a meal with a friend to actually say <laughs> you know there there's a lot of scaffolding that we need to understand in order to get to that point. so I mean just that sense of knowing your story, knowing where you come from. Uh, knowing kind of what you're experiencing in your marriage, all of that is the necessary scaffolding in order to get to some of those higher level conversations. And so uh, I mean, that's where, yeah, so grateful for your book as well, is that it's, it's providing language for people to be able to talk about their experiences and what they're, what they're going through. So I think Brené Brown and her latest book, quotes a German philosopher where he says, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. And, you know, when I read your your work as well, that's what I'm always thinking about is like, you are giving people language to describe a world that they have been, that they have inherited and that they are mm-hmm. a part of without necessarily having <laughs> honest mm-hmm. language for what's experiencing. And I, that's what I hope to offer in this sexual fantasy unwanted world as well is, You know, no one teaches us, trains us how to think about our sexual life. So if we can have more books and more conversations and communities where we're actually comfortable and okay talking about some of these difficult, but also very important themes, I do think that we will get healthier because we don't have to bury Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so much of our sexual mind.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think what I, what I found in in a lot of the stories that you shared too, is even though these, these fantasies, these behaviors, these, whatever you want to call it, um, are so disturbing. When you do get to the root of it, there is so much healing and not just of your sexuality, but of the whole self and of the relationship (laughs) When you understand that, yeah, I just, I just needed to feel like I had some power because I felt powerless my whole life. Like that's something that goes beyond the bedroom. Yes. Yeah. And often it's these deepest wounds that manifest themselves most in the bedroom, Mm -hmm. but the wounds are actually something else.
1: Yes. Yeah. 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 And I think especially like for men, we have this sense of, you know, we don't know how to talk about our needs and our desires. It's like the only thing that most men know how to talk about in terms of desire in a relationship is like how many orgasms they're having. Uh, And so I don't think it's any wonder why sexual problems are often the crucible that invite men to address their life and to understand their story, to understand how, you know, they just have not been socialized to understand how to make relationships work and how to have mutuality. Um, just a lot of times we are tend to be very isolated. And then those initial behaviors of porn that you might find as an adolescent you keep going back to that same thing. Anytime you feel boredom, anytime you feel lonely, anytime you feel angry. And that is kind of like that exit ramp of like, you know, you're going down a highway and then you hit some traffic and you don't know how to navigate through it. You don't know how to stay in the tension of what is being required. And you just keep taking that exit. And so therefore it's the sense of, you know, the exit is trying to get your attention to be able to say there's a lot that you need to develop uh, in order to maneuver through life.
0: Mm -hmm. You you mentioned anger and you have a a big part of the book where you talk about how lust and anger almost always go together. Can you explain that? Because I know a lot of people have told me that too, that when their husbands were addicted to porn, they were angry. When they actually, when they did get through the recovery, Hmm. they couldn't believe this man wasn't angry anymore. So Like What does that look like in your practice?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's some classic examples would be, um, let me back up. So, you know, this is really from Dan Allender's thinking, but, you know, when he's looking at kind of Jesus's words in Matthew five of, you know. Essentially, all of us struggle with lust. All of us also struggle with anger. Uh, And so just that sense of there's a level of adultery and a level of murder within each of us. And so a lot of times when we think about sin, we only think about it in terms of especially sexual sin in terms of lust. But there is also that sense of no, sexual sin is also an issue of anger if you're to understand Matthew 5. And then James four takes it even further. And James, the language in James chapter four is, you know, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, you want something and you don't get, so you kill. And so I think that that, you know, that you can kind of understand a marriage that maybe one partner really wants to have sex and they are consistently rebuffed or told no. And it's that sense of, I feel really angry at you for turning me down because my sense of self is wrapped up into this. Like I need you to desire me, I need to be wanted. And then they're very angry. And so that anger might be lashed out on their partner or they might go to porn or to infidelity in order to kind of act out some of that anger. And so I think we just have to be able to say like, uh, having sexual desire is not lust, but sometimes the the level of lust is it's about covetousness. It's about like, I want to own you. I want to have you to a degree that I'm not thinking about your well being, I'm not thinking about your safety. I'm not thinking about your pleasure. I'm thinking about like you as an object that I, Am coveting. And then when you don't offer me what I want and what I feel like I deserve, I will make you pay some way. And so that payment could be a contempt based marriage, it could be a marriage with a lot of hiding and a lot of secrecy, and a lot of unwanted sexual behavior and so uh, contempt in a marriage isn't just always uh, a lot of anger and vitriol. It could be also sexual hiding as well of, you know, you're not the person for me. You don't give me what I feel like I mm-hmm. desire. And so I'm going to go and fight sexually behind your back. And so yeah. it's it, that's that sense of it's not just an issue of lust or excessive sexual desire. There's a level of anger that has become woven into eroticism.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that was very sobering, that part. Um, Okay. So in your book, you talk about you know listening to your list, You talk about understanding all of these different things, but then you have the section at the end on how we can actually get towards recovery. You know, as we understand our own stories, et cetera. But there were some other things that you that you brought up that were that I found really interesting. Um, Let me quote a stat: Only twenty seven percent of porn users had a solid pattern of self care, which includes things like exercising, eating well, spending time with your friends. Um, and so that I found that really interesting. So if we're going to get better, we need to start establishing just basic self-care.
1: Yes, we do. Yeah. It, I mean, it comes back to that sense of like, what is your inner voice? Do you like yourself? Uh, and so I'm probably going to mispronounce her name, but it, it's a meme. I don't know her work, but I believe she's a psychotherapist, Brianna Wiest. Uh, she has this great quote, and I'm again, I'm not going to honor it. But it's something like, you know, self-care is not all about chocolate and salt baths. uh, But self-care is essentially about building a life that you don't have to escape from. And so most of the time when I'm working with people that are struggling with unwanted sexual behavior is that it looks like they are struggling with indulgence. And indeed they are. But the root system of indulgence is very often deprivation. And so I think about, you know, that almost like if you were to imagine a seesaw, most people struggling with unwanted sexual behavior uh, live with a lot of deprivation. So it's a sense of they haven't been to the dentist, the doctor, they don't feel like they can actually take a personal day because they don't deserve it. Or maybe their spouse is really exhausted. And so to think about taking a day to go hike, to take a day to go to the spa just feels too self-indulgent and so any level of like healthy levels of desire they don't feel like they deserve or they don't feel like they can actually have the amount of time that they need to engage it and so what ends up happening is that seesaw gets you know weighed down with deprivation. And then all of a sudden the seesaw goes back into entitlement, which is like, I've been so good. I've been so sacrificial. Uh, I haven't been angry. I've been kind. And now I get 10 minutes, uh, to my own desires. And then it's like, ah, I just screwed up again. I failed. Uh, I, And then that that's the catch. Twenty-two is then you go back to a life of deprivation because you feel like you are such a failure. And so I think a a lot of people that I work with struggling with unwanted sexual behavior seesaw back and forth between a lot of deprivation and then moments of entitlement that then set that back up. And so I think of self-care as you know just like that the fourth commandment of you've got to have a Sabbath. And a Sabbath is the sense of it's a day of delight. It's a place where um, when you think about how has your heart and body been made, like when you are in the mountains, uh, you know, I think it's a John Muir quote where he says, we are in the mountains and the mountains are in us. And, you know, any time that I'm in nature, there's the sense of rest, beauty, strength, Um, And that's what I want to be reminding myself on the Sabbath is that I'm not just there to be able to be useful and productive. I need to be able to have a soul that's in touch with desire and beauty and rest. And so I think that's really how we begin to outgrow these unwanted sexual behaviors is not to be able to say no, but far more that sense of like, what do I want to say yes to? And so, you know, the language of Galatians 5 is that, it is for freedom that I have been set free. And so it's not about freedom from a porn struggle. It's not about freedom from unwanted sexual behavior. It's really a sense of what is your freedom for? And I think as you begin to get an imagination around what would healthy desire look like or healthy patterns of self-care, it's really that, that vision of the good, the true, and the beautiful that I think can begin to compel us to a very different way of life but it's not, it's that something needs to die in order for something really lovely to grow.
0: Yeah, this, it kind of goes along with this quote that I marked from the book too. Here, let me, let me read you this one. Um, When your life is characterized by a marked absence of delight, adventure, and intimacy, activities that kill time and hope by offering escape become central to your identity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when there isn't that, that delight that that freedom for self-care that freedom to do things that are good then then yeah like we're gonna look to escape and we're gonna look to kill time and you know kill the hope that anything will get better and we escape into these unwanted behaviors and so how do we like how do we get that delight adventure and intimacy back
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm I know I'm using too many quotes, but this is how I think in terms of <laughs> metaphors and quotes. But uh Annie Dillard, Pulitzer prize winning author, uh she has this great quote where she says I never knew I was a bell until the moment I was lifted up and struck. Uh and so it's that sense of like what are the bell-like moments in your life where Uh, Maybe you were gardening, maybe you were hosting a dinner party, uh, maybe you were in a conversation with a friend, and something from outside of you, but also paradoxically, something deep within you just began to ring, and it's like, this is who I am. Uh, and that's what I would want you to kind of pay attention to, or like, what are the places in your life in your relationships where you feel that bell ringing with life? And so I think initially for me, uh, you know, I grew up in a family that, you know, my dad was a Presbyterian minister. Uh, this was like a sign of the times. It's not just all a critique on my family, but like a salad was, uh, iceberg lettuce, a couple shaved Carrots with like a whole heaping of ranch dressing, and then like a <laughs> dinner was like cream of mushroom soup, uh, chicken like maybe two chicken breasts spread apart. The six of us with like ritz crackers on top, and that was like my favorite dinner. So I'm not knocking any of that. Uh, but then a, you know a day out was like maybe riding a bike around the neighborhood, and in the midst of that, I went through a lot of bullying in middle school. My nickname was Donut, so I was about, I don't know, 40, 50 pounds overweight in middle school. And so most of my relationship to to food and to my body was just very shame-based. And so I'll never forget just moving out to Seattle, uh, having a lot of friends that surfed uh, out. If you drive about three hours from Seattle, you can get to surf, but you're in a wetsuit and you look like a little Martian out on the waters. Uh, but it's also you know outdoor, uh, just an extraordinary place for uh, a lot of mountaineering, hiking. And so had some friends that you know loved to climb mountains. And so I will never forget uh, three friends. One friend invited me surfing. Uh, another friend invited me to run a marathon and climb Mount Rainier. And then another friend of mine was a restaurateur. Uh, And, you know, first time going to his restaurant, like completely ruined me. And so those were like three very foundational moments, not just to outgrowing unwanted sexual behaviors in my own personal life, but really a sense of like, this is what I want life to feel like. Mm -hmm. And so that day on the water of surfing of like, this is beautiful. Like to be able to feel one with a surfboard and feel the delight on the water, uh, another time climbing Mount Rainier, it was just like probably the first time in my life, which is so sad to say it, but I felt a level of respect and honor for my body because I'm like, my body can do really hard things. Like I feel like this mountaineer energy within me and I have a lot of endurance, and a lot of power and a lot of strength. And I had never seen my body in that way mm-hmm. at all. And then this experience with food, which has happened time and time again after that. But, you know, when you have a lot of, uh, you know, eating disorders and struggles with food, uh, there's so much noise when it comes to really enjoying something. But the food and the drink were just so good that it was like I needed to suffer the goodness of this meal. Uh, And not feel shame, not feel overindulgent, but to be able to say this is all good and beautiful and like bliss. And so I think those were like three moments for me that are also I think of my three friends faces of like, let's go. Um, And so to me, that's part of what I would say, not just true of unwanted sexual behavior, but, you know, The average American uh, will watch four and a half hours of television a day. The average teenager is exposed to like nine hours of media. And so I don't think it's just putting restrictions and saying, no, I think you have to have a vision and an experience within your body and soul and relationships of something so much more beautiful. And so I think that's that, that sense of how do we come alive to be able to experience the goodness of our bodies, the goodness of our souls, instead of just feeling like we are steeped in shame.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's, I, I wanna end, can we end on the story of the shark and shame? Cause I oh, yeah. thought that was such a good <laughs> yeah. word picture.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like a favorite reader story, which I should tell two shark stories. Uh, the first one, the book, and then another one from Patagonia has a film called Fish People. Uh, so the the story that I tell in the book is, uh, there's a show called Shark Week that the Discovery Channel does. And the videographer is a guy by the name of Andy Casagrande. And he was interviewed, and, and they basically said, Andy, what in the world do you do when you're swimming? Uh, with great white sharks. So this guy gets into the, the waters without a cage, like just completely insane. Uh, and what he says is it's, it's basically what you're supposed to do is when there is a shark coming at you, you swim right at the shark with the camera. And so what ends up happening is the, the shark bumps its nose against the camera lens realizes that it's not food and it has like an amygdala fear reaction to it and then it begins to swim off because if you are a great white shark you are used to the entire ocean swimming away from you mm-hmm. except for maybe an orca and so when something is swimming at you it doesn't know what to do and so it begins to swim off and Casa Grande says when The shark makes its escape that's when I make my escape and he goes on to say this profound phrase if you do not act like prey they will not treat you like prey and I think that just has so much to teach us with regard to these great white memories in our lives these kind of struggles that we have is that most of us try to swim away from the voice and the accusations of shame uh, but the problem with that is that the more that we run away from shame, the more we legitimize its message about us. And so part of what we need to do is to turn and face our shame and really begin to disempower it. So that was the Andy Casagrande. And then fish people, there's a spear fisher by the name of Kimmy Werner. And she takes like, you know, like one breath, and can descend into depths of like a hundred feet just on that one breath. And Ooh. you know, spearfishes, and then she talks about, or her dad talks about, um, you know, the first time that he started seeing Kimmy spearfish with like sharks. And she just goes right at it. And she's like, you know, you are not gonna take my dinner, not today, buddy. And she just like, you see her swimming right at sharks. And then by the, you know, the end of that little vignette, she's like riding a great white shark or something on its dorsal fin, which Mm. is like, how in the world did you get to that point? But it's that sense of the energy that we put out there with regard to our sexual problems, our struggles, often reinforce the shame. And so I think the more that we can turn and face it in community, turn and face it with a licensed therapist, uh, the more that we will get in that pattern of facing really difficult things. And so what we need to learn is that facing shame and facing hardship is really a, a muscle that we develop that maybe it begins with a porn struggle, but then yeah, there are difficult things to face in every marriage, every family, every relationship. And the more that we build those muscles to turn and face difficult things, the more that we're gonna find ourselves turning to face a lot more in our life with a lot more integrity.
0: I love that. Okay. Yeah. Um, one last question. I said the last thing was the last yeah. thing. Yeah. Was actually, the last thing. Um, I know there's gonna be a lot of people listening to this whose spouses are the ones with a lot of unwanted sexual behavior. yeah, And they may listen and say, okay, well, that's all fine and good to say that there might be a reason for it and we need to face it. We need to look mm-hmm. into it, but my spouse is still hurting me and they're not getting better. Yeah. So what yes. do you do if you're the spouse of the person who is acting out?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Such a good question. So, um, We should never use our story to evade responsibility. (laughs) That would be the primary thing, is that engaging your narrative, your story has to be done. Um, But the reason why it's done is to build that muscle for honesty in the present. So if I can't be honest about my past, I'm going to have a really hard time understanding myself and being honest about who I am. So a lot of times, you know, we can grow up in families or in systems that tend to be fairly rigid and dogmatic. And so if we have not done the really difficult work to name things honestly, uh, I forget who says it, but you know that sense of we cannot heal what we do not acknowledge. If you can't acknowledge the ways that you have been sinned against or used or just places of heartache in your life, it's going to be very difficult for you to be able to really step in to take responsibility for yourself. And so, whenever I'm doing an intensive, uh, you know, with someone who has struggled, that's part of what I tell them is like the work that you and I are doing is really important for the past and to address that. But the second stage of this is really to be able to connect the dots between past harm and your story with the ways that you are actively sabotaging and manipulating your marriage. And so in my estimation, if you try to get especially a man to just own up to their manipulation, their hiding um, right off the bat, sometimes they will engage it, but then the patterns will reemerge. For me, the the best return on investment is to be able to you know, step into someone's story and then connect the dots with regard to how they are functioning in their marriage. And I think that's one of the failures of my field, one of the failures of, I think we're waking up to trauma, we're waking up to childhood wounds in a very refreshing way, like I think it has to be done. But I think our field has not done the best job of being able to say, okay, now that you understand the story, how are you recreating the story? And I think that's really where the grief begins to come in is uh, I have not only been harmed, but I am also someone who has done a great deal of harm. And so if I have grief from my past, but also grief for how I have uh, affected my wife, Hurt my wife, hidden things from my wife, that's really where change begins to happen. So uh, we've got to address both, uh, but don't use your story to evade responsibility.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. That's so important. Okay, everybody, yeah. you seriously, you got to get Unwanted. It's it's a great book. I feel so much better because now I have an answer when women write in about these fantasies. I never knew what to say. So this is great.
1: <laughs> it's one of many. I mean, you got, there's some, there's great books out there with regard to that, but I have, I'm a, I only have one book out right now. And one fun thing on like Amazon, I think Barnes and Noble is that this one is always paired with people that buy <laughs> Unwanted also yes. buy this. So <laughs> That was really fun to see in the last couple yes, months. Yes,
0: Great Sex, Rescue and Unwanted are almost, almost always beside each other. So yes. um, go check out so Jay. Prolific, where can people find but, you?
1: Uh, website is jay-stringer.com uh, or Instagram as well with uh, Jay Stringer. There is also a uh, British crime novelist uh, by the name of Jay Stringer. So sometimes people <laughs> think like, are you writing crime fiction now? Or they'll go to that guy's website, but I am a therapist, and so jaydeathstringer.com or on Instagram at I think it's j underscore stringer underscore because the other J Stringer has (laughs) most of the clean life.
0: Right. So. Well, we will put those links in the podcast notes too. Yeah. Jay, thank you so much. I'm sure we will have you back again um because our work does overlap so much. And I am glad that you're doing all these studies too. I just I think that's wonderful. I think it's gonna really help um the body of Christ find mm-hmm. new ways to talk about this stuff that are actually helpful. So thank you for the work you're doing. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think hopefully the next 10 years between the work that's being done, like we'll have a lot more language and a lot of really good, redemptive ways to engage some of these problems that all of us tend to go through at one point in our lives. So Mm -hmm. an honor to do this work with you, Sheila.
0: Thank you so much. All right. I really appreciated what Jay had to say. Um, Seriously, I know I said this so many times in the interview already, but go get unwanted. he does the same stuff that we did in Great Sex Rescue, where he did his original research. There's um, there's all kinds of numbers in there. Uh, there's all kinds of info. It's just, it's fascinating. And he gave me words for so many things I've just been wondering about. Like, sometimes I get these emails and I honestly don't know what to say. It's just heartbreaking. And so just giving me language around how to talk about fantasy and, and understanding that this isn't just something you know, that's shameful because you're a terrible person. <laughs> but there might be a reason that your fantasies go in all of these different directions. I just I just found what he said about women's fantasies in particular. Um, so interesting, because I've never known what to say to these women. So this is fun. This has opened up a whole new area of research for me. I want to do so much more reading on this. Uh, I, just, I just love that. And Jay was mentioning Emily Nagoski's work as well. We didn't name the book in that interview, but Come As You Are, a really groundbreaking book on understanding um, women's sexuality. And so, yeah, together, I think we're just getting some amazing resources. So go check those out. Unwanted, come as you are, of course, our book, The Great Sex Rescue. Um, And then please uh, join in for the next two episodes of the Bare Marriage Podcast in November. We're going to be looking practically again at how to dig out of that pit and what it means to have an integrated view of sexuality. So check us out on the blog too. We're talking about that all month. And we will see you again next week for the next edition of the Bare Marriage Podcast. Bye-bye.